Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, but you do not warn him. You do not speak out to warn him about his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person will die for his iniquity. Yet, I will hold you responsible for his blood. Dear church, will you pray with me? God, thank you for our ability to gather together. Please be with the sick and the lonely who are unable to be with us here today. God, we pray for your church around the world. God, please give courage and comfort to our brothers and sisters as they defend their faith and continue to make disciples around the world. And please be with us today as we listen and learn from your word. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Oh. You're not off. Am I off? Oh, <laughs> please be seated. Uh, good morning, church. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here. I'm usually responsible for worship and for prayer, but this morning it's my joy to get to preach to you. Just so you know, we sent off a missionary uh, last service. Graham Holiday is going off to Ecuador for a year with Campus Crusade, and we as a church are supporting him in doing that. So let's just give him and us a round of applause and encouragement. We are actively involved in the work of the kingdom around the world, and we always want to remember that. Um, so this morning, we're continuing on in the book of Acts, and I'm kind of a context junkie. If you haven't heard me preach before, I like to remember where we are in the story, and it's important in the book of Acts to do that, because there's a lot of, of narrative, a lot of stories that happen. Um, so to remind us where we're at, Paul is coming off in an earthly sense kind of a failure in Athens. He had the chance to stand in the pocket and trade with the big dogs of philosophy to, to ascend the, the hill of the Areopagus and take his place with these philosophical elites. But what did he do? He called them to quit their lifelong ideologies and idolatries and to repent and follow the Jewish Messiah. So they dismissed him and sent him away. And sure, he had a few converts, but it was nothing that we could, could call anything like revival. And before that, it was prison. And before that, it was a beating. And before that, it was a relational split with John Mark. And before that, it was a stoning that left him on the verge of death. So coming into Corinth, Paul wasn't doing so well physically and emotionally. Look what he said to the Corinthians in, in his first letter to them. In chapter 2, he said, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. That hadn't worked super well in Athens for him. I decided to know nothing amongst you but Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So can you imagine how exhausted he must have been? He was running on the power of the Holy Spirit and not much else. But he still had the call to preach the gospel. And now he comes to Corinth. 
Corinth, the city, uh, in the immortal words of Obi-Wan Kenobi, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy than in Corinth. A city which is five times the population of Athens, but gripped with just as much idolatry, just as much pagan influence. So he doesn't just get to quit. He doesn't just get to put his feet up and rest. He still has the calling from God to proclaim the gospel. And honestly, this is how most of the Christian life is. In the beginning, you have these stirring moments where you are on your own road to Damascus. You're knocked off your proverbial horse. The scales lift from your eyes. You're empowered and called by the Holy Spirit. And you feel like you could go out and convert the entire world. And then, one thing after another happens. You sin more than you ever thought you possibly could. You get weary of all, I'm gonna cough. Excuse me. You get weary of all the pushback from your family and the world. You get discouraged by the enormity of the task. And you get hurt and calloused when your acts of love are met with scorn and rejection. So if you're in a place like that this morning, this message is for you. But I know some of you aren't like this. You are the energizer bunny of discipleship and evangelism, of good works and evangelization. And we praise God for people like you, and you are such a blessing to the church, but this message is for you too, because whether you have never been in a season of exhaustion uh, or feeling beat up, or you are currently in a season of exhaustion and feeling beat up, I guarantee you that if you continue to carry the banner of Christ into the fight against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, you will be. You are going to experience a season or two of weakness and fear and much trembling. Where the only thing that is enabling you to hang on is the fact that the Holy Spirit is hanging on to you. And as we will see, doing nothing is not an option for us. Like Paul, we have a standing order from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to go into all the earth, preach the gospel, teach obedience, and baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's turn to Acts 18. Let's see what Paul did here. After this, he left Athens in verse one, and he went to Corinth where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife. Priscilla, because Claudius, the, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave, or Caesar had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So how did Paul proceed? How do we proceed in the moment where the mission seems overwhelming? And the first point this morning is you start where you stand. You start where you stand. In the field of emergency medicine, there's something called a mass casualty incident. And these are the horrifying moments in humanity 
the, the, the plane crashes and the bus accidents and the, the Beirut explosions and the, and the 9-11s, where the, the number of victims, the number of injured people are, is so high that it overwhelms all professional and mental resources of the care providers. And part of what makes this experience, these moments so overwhelming is there is so much need and there are such limited resources. And so you want to save the resources for those who really need it. But someone has to decide who really needs it. So the job of the first emergency team on site is to initiate the process of triage to determine who needs what and when. Now, this is perhaps the hardest job on the scene because your decisions in triage are going to determine that some people are going to die so that other people, more people, can live. And if that isn't an overwhelming burden enough, there's other confusing factors like the safety of the scene. There's fire, there may be fires burning or electrical lines or a chemical attack, whatever it is, coupled with people crying out for help or demanding your help. And the visual trauma of injured people and dead bodies can be overwhelming. So even getting started on the task of triage is overwhelming. So in order to clear up some of the in-the-moment confusion some of the in-the-moment burden, there is a standing guideline for initiating triage, and it's this. You start where you stand. You find the victim that is closest to your feet, and you start the process right there. And Paul is demonstrating the same kind of attitude, the same kind of thing here. He has an overwhelming task, and his resources are clearly limited. So since Paul was a Jew, by ethnicity, by culture, by religion, and a tent maker by trade, he establishes his home base with Jewish tent makers. And he starts to evangelize the Jews, those people closest to him. He doesn't walk the city to find an area or a group of people who are most gripped by idolatry or most gripped by poverty. He doesn't try and find those people least like him. He finds those people who by God's providence are like him, and he starts there. Verse 4 says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade both the Jews and the Greek converts to Judaism. And when reinforcements arrive to, to, to help in the form of Silas and Timothy, it enables him to give up the tent making and devote himself to solely evangelizing the Jews. We read in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. So when he gets the chance, he doubles down on what he's already doing. And is he successful? Nope. <laughs> verse 6 says, not in, a, not in a practical, pragmatic sense, verse 6 says, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his own clothes and he told them, your blood is on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. <laughs> and can't you just hear the threadbare emotion of Paul here? Your blood is on your own heads. When Clem 
is eating dinner. She's not a dinner eater. But it never fails. We sit there and say, hey, Clem, eat something. I'm not hungry. Hey, Clem, eat something. I'm not hungry. And then as soon as bedtime rolls around, I'm hungry. So during the dinner process, saying, hey, you need to eat something. You need to eat something. And she pushes back. All I want to do sometimes is scream, then go ahead and starve. <laughs> right? Now, now, this doesn't mean that Paul doesn't love them. Because listen, just four or five years later, writing to the Romans from this very city, Paul would speak so affectionately about his Jewish brethren that he would say he wished he could give up his own salvation so that they might be saved. But here he is undone with frustration at their rejection and their blasphemy. And now Paul isn't just throwing out some random phrase here. He's likely referencing two passages from the book of Ezekiel. One of them we read at the beginning uh, of the sermon. And it's Ezekiel 3, 17 through 18, where God had given a message of warning to Ezekiel to warn God's people of his coming judgment. And he tells Ezekiel, if you do not deliver this message, truly the wicked will die because of their iniquity, but I'm going to hold you responsible for them. The second passage is like it in Ezekiel 33. uh, Starting in in verse one, going through, through verse 15, but God paints this, he continues to paint this picture of Ezekiel as a watchman on the wall, blowing a ram's horn of warning about the coming judgment. And it says in verse four, then if anyone hears the sound of the ram's horn, but ignores the warning and the sword comes for them and takes him away, his blood will be on his head. Since he heard the sound of the ram's horn, but he ignored the warning, his death is his own fault. So Paul here is saying, like he did to the pagans in Athens, you are no longer without excuse. He's saying to them, I have blown the horn. I have delivered the message. Judgment is coming to the household of God. And your rejection, your embracing of death is now on your head. And this highlights an important point. Brothers and sisters, the message of Christ is vital both for the hearer to hear and for the proclaimer to proclaim. The message of Christ is vital for both the hearer to hear and the proclaimer to proclaim. And sure, Paul is probably over cranky here. He needs a nap and he needs a snack. But he is also being loving to them by calling things out as they are. So can somebody tell me what the second greatest commandment is? Love your neighbor as yourself. Does anybody know where that comes from? It comes from Leviticus. <laughs> so Leviticus 19, verse 18. Does anybody know what Leviticus 19, 17 says? It says, do not harbor hatred against your brother, rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Paul links rebuking our neighbors with harboring hatred towards him. And as a conflict-averse person, this makes my skin crawl. For Ryan, Ryan, he gets a big smile and he leans right into it. He loves it. But... (laughs) 
But the reality is, is Paul loved them enough. He loved them enough to go to them even when he was exhausted and weak, to tell them the good news, which included the rebuke of the bad news, which can frequently cause people to reject us. So after you start where you stand and you get rejected, what do you do next? Well, next, you step out your front door. You step out the front door. And honestly, this point could just be folded into the, the previous point, uh, but I'm a preacher and I needed three points, so there's some stuff that you can, there's, some, there's some, some good things that we can learn from this, this little passage here, so we're just gonna do it that way. And I love what it says in Acts 18, verses seven through eight. It says, so he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, a, a Roman convert, whose house was next door to the, syn- the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. So Paul has again experienced a failure in an earthly sense with the Jews. So once he realizes that that door is closed, he moves on literally to the house next door. Paul doesn't go wandering the city He doesn't start a demographic survey. He doesn't put up a revival tent and invite people to come. He doesn't spend time grieving over his rejection. He doesn't spend time worrying about what's gonna happen to the Jews uh, because of their rejection. No, he moves to the next available plot of land and he starts plowing. And what this highlights is both the urgency of the task and the sovereignty of God in the task of witnessing and discipleship. The sovereignty of God in that Paul left the judgment of the synagogue in the hands of God. And he continued on with his overarching task that God had called him to to do. He had certainly worked hard there, but he trusted the results of that work to God. And when God closed the door there, he didn't give up on his appointed mission. And it demonstrates the urgency of the task in that he didn't take time to lick his wounds or deconstruct and debrief the the, the situation that had happened. He walked out that slamming door, he hooked a right, and he walked in the next open door that he saw. Now, he got back to work, he got back into the fight, and this time, happily, he got to see some results. And brothers and sisters, there are certainly times when a good plan is important. You cannot escape this. You cannot escape this in, in the Proverbs. Planning is, is a good and important thing. Taking moments of time to, to craft an intentional approach to, to evangelism or, or apologetics, it's good. But sometimes, more frequently than that, the Christian life and ministry is simply keep moving forward. Trust God and do the next right thing. This starting where you stand and then moving to the next available door is how the gospel goes forward in the world. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The church, Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria. This is how it goes forward on a macro scale. It goes from one region to the neighboring region. But it's also how it goes forward on the micro scale. You, your children, your family, your roommate, your neighbor, your other neighbor, your teammate, your coworker. Stepping out to the metaphorical, and in, and in the, this story, the literal, next door is how we obey the great commandment. And when we do, like with the early church, we will see some people converted. We will see some people reject and dismiss us. And we will see some come after us. So how do we handle all three of those scenarios? We entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. You entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Read with me Acts 18, 7 through 13. Or 9 through 13, I think. That's the one. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. That must have been a huge relief to Paul. Oh, I'm not going to get beaten or stoned here? This is awesome. (laughs) So he stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. And then, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Having been given a reprieve from the perpetual state of persecution and danger, Paul understandably sets up in Corinth for a year and a half. And what a gift that must have been. What a gift that must have been to be able to pause his his frenzied travels and recover physically and build relationships with this fledgling church. What a joy it must have been to be able to devote himself to the under the promise of God to the long-term work of discipleship in this community, the long-term work of the kingdom in Corinth. And so we pray for times like this. We ask God to bring times like this. We ask God to provide times like this. We advocate for times like this. We, we vote and we, and we serve for times like this. Because the long-term work of the kingdom can be done well in a, in a peaceful moment like this. Paul tells us to, and tells Timothy to pray for, for kings and leaders so that we might have a peaceable life, so that we might do the work of the kingdom. But then all of a sudden, he is once again dragged into the courts. They bring him before the proconsul's tribunal, leveling a charge at him which at best amounted to heresy and at worst amounted to insurrection. You see, even though Rome saw the Jews as a perpetual annoyance, so much so that, that Claudius had just removed all of the Jews from Rome, the Jews got a pass on participating in the imperial cult, in the worship of Caesar. You see, they had been designated a religio licita, a legal religion, due to the antiquity of their system. They were grandfathered in even though their religion excluded worshiping other gods. 
which Caesar considered himself to be. So, when they come to Gallio saying he's teaching people to worship in ways contrary to the Torah, they're trying to delegitimize any legal protection for Paul and for Christianity. They're saying he's not a Jew. He's not practicing Judaism. And if successful in delegitimizing Christianity and, and the followers of it, while those, those people, while still claiming that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, he would be considered a heretic by Judaism and the imperial cultists. But in trying to get other people to follow, he would potentially be considered an insurrectionist for trying to convert others to the obedience and the lordship of Christ. So make no mistake, the Jews are trying to kill him here. Either kill his influence or kill his physical person. And they were certainly trying to legally delegitimize him and his entire following. So I can imagine in this moment that Paul was clinging desperately to God's promise that no harm would come to him while he was there in Corinth. And then we read what happens next. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, the new leader of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. What happens here is incredible. The Jews had brought Paul to Roman courts. The Jews had their own courts. The Jews had been given their own bema seat to, to rule from, and they drag him to Roman courts in an attempt to use the ungodly system, that ungodly system, to get the gospel and the followers of the gospel declared illegal. And this unjust judge, Gallio, flips that effort on its head. Now, don't get me wrong, Gallio is unjust for two reasons. First, because he doesn't care that they beat an innocent man in front of him. And God's law would demand that a just judge put a stop to that and punish the perpetrators. And the second reason that he's unjust, Paul has just come from Athens where he's made it plain that God calls all men everywhere to repent. Not just Jews, not just Greeks, but even Roman proconsuls. And the Jews presented the case of the gospel to him in order to get him to declare it illegal, and Gallio dismisses it, both legally and personally. In doing so, he dismisses God's call to bend his knee to Christ. So in that sense, he is a rebel. He is unjust, and he is unjustified. And history proved him to be, if not a scoundrel himself, at least associated closely with scoundrels to the point where he was forced to commit suicide because of a legal scandal he was associated with. So he's an unjust judge. However, in refusing to decide this case, Gallio gives tacit legal approval to Christianity as a sect of Judaism. Jeff talked about this 
sorry, God uses this unjust mob and this unjust judge and this anti-God system to give legal standing to Christianity. Jeff talked about this in the introduction to the book of Acts. This book is a legal document. It's an amicus brief making the legal case that Christianity is a legal religion and has the right to exist in the Roman world. And just like we saw in Athens where Christianity has a rational standing in the marketplace, we see now in Corinth that it has a legal standing in the courts. Because just like we saw in Athens, Christ's authority is over all spheres, including economic and judicial systems. And to prove that authority, God, the true judge of the earth, accomplishes this validation of Christianity despite the injustice and without Paul ever having to open his mouth to mount a defense. And so in the in the effort of starting where we stand and moving to the next door, we also entrust ourselves to the judge who judges justly. So how do we apply this? This has been pretty application heavy already, but the application this morning is start <laughs> where you stand. If you have the gospel, listen, if you have the gospel, you are a watchman on the wall holding a ram's horn. And sure, you can start blowing it. Sure, you can be equipped to blow that ram's horn more powerfully or more graciously or more winsomely, but you can do all that after you have started warning your people with this horn. So start. And to paraphrase Mike Hickenbotham, my father, who said this to me in a very uh, low moment of my life. <clears throat> he said, it may be hard to correct, uh, to course correct a moving aircraft carrier. Aircraft carriers are huge. The physics of, of altering their courses, it, the, the power required to do it is tremendous. He said, it might, may be hard to course correct a moving aircraft carrier, but it's impossible to course correct one that's standing still. So as a guy who tends to overthink, who tends to underact, a lot of the time it is because I want to do the absolute best thing with my limited resources. So when something needs to be done, I try to understand the backstory. Okay, how, do we, how did we get here? Why, does, why do we need to do this now? And then I research the alternatives for accomplishing this task. And I analyze the opportunity costs of these different strategies, right? I'm not the ready, fire, aim guy. I'm the ready, ready, get ready some more, aim, 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 fire kind of guy. Ask my wife, ask Jeff. <laughs> and when it comes to the work of the kingdom, I, in particular things like evangelism and discipleship, most people, I think, are like me. We want to make sure we have a good strategy. We want to make sure that we're in a healthy emotional place. We want to, to know the intimate specifics of why each person is struggling to find belief in God so that we can form a, a, a proper personalized apologetic for them. 
We want to know what person or what people group needs it the most and invest our limited energy there. We know that it's important, so we don't want to biff it up. So we would rather not try than try and fail. Or like this week, we're just overwhelmed by the enormity of the task. There's too much hurt. There's too much brokenness. There's too much evil. And what that translates into is we just don't do anything. And we get stuck in a repeating cycle of not doing anything. Now, most of us aren't going to be called to a foreign land. However, some of you probably are, and you need to consider it more than you are. But most of us aren't going to be called to a foreign land as missionaries. And you aren't going to have to get your feet under you in a new city. You aren't going to have to recover from a stoning or a beating. You already have a home base. It's called your home. And that's where you start. The people in your home need to hear the good news that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, that he's the king of the earth, and that his mercies are new and available every morning, including the person you see in the mirror. So start there. Next, step out next door. Again, some of you should be considering the missions field and you're running away from it, but most of you have a missions field literally next door to you or sitting in the next cubicle. And what happens when you try and you fail there? You move to the next door or the next cubicle. And then you try the next one. But in order to do this, in order to, to, to press into this task, you must have a Pauline sense of urgency and a Pauline sense of God's sovereignty in it. And to get that, you have to foster and develop an understanding of God's character and his worth. He is worthy of the hearts of every person in your life. He's worthy of experiencing rejection for. He's worthy of pushing through tiredness and pain and, and scorn. And he's worthy of having his message proclaimed across the earth. He's worthy of all repentance and obedience from all spheres of society. And then you lean in to the understanding of God's sovereignty over that over that whole experience. And one of the primary ways you do that is by you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Brothers and sisters, we are not always going to get it right. We're gonna have emotional outbursts and failures. We're gonna scream, your blood is on your head. And that's an aggressive tactic. But look, in God's sovereignty, it worked to save Crispus, the leader of the synagogue. And we're not always going to have it easy. We are going to face persecution and injustice. But God uses injustice. He uses persecution. And even if you die, even if you die, the promise is that the judge of the earth will do 
what is right. Now, it's easy to preach this message in Idaho Falls today. Most of us woke up in a warm, dry place. We have food in our stomach, right? We, we, yes, we have struggles, and I'm not trying to delegitimize those in the slightest. Some of us have very real pain, very real hurt, very real difficulty. But this same message could be preached in Afghanistan today. And I don't know if I'd have the courage to do it. But the call to the church in Afghanistan is entrust yourself to the judge who will judge justly. And so what we're going to do here at the end is we're going to pray for the church in Afghanistan. We're going to pray for, Af- for Afghanistan in general, but specifically the church in Afghanistan who is facing, who's facing imminent death. They have been, they've made the good confession. They have made the, the, the confession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And they will, many will likely die for it. And so we're going to pray for them that they would entrust themselves to the care of God. Because I can't get into Afghanistan. I don't know how to do that. Right? But I can pray for them here. I can pray for them as the scriptures say, pray, pray for those in prison Pray for those under persecution like you are there with them. And we can pray that way for them. So pray with me. Jesus, it's easy to preach a message like this when the wolf is not at the door. But your word is true in all times and in all places. And so, God, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing death for following you around the world, but specifically in Afghanistan. God, we pray that their hearts would be emboldened to entrust themselves to you, entrust their families, their sons and their daughters, their, their wives and their husbands to you. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with them, comforting them, giving them the the grace to face this situation. God, we pray that you would be merciful. God, that the hearts of of the Taliban would be gripped by a knowledge of you and they would repent of their evil and their persecution of you. And that they would bend the knee and confess that you are Lord and that we would rejoice with them in heaven. And Lord, you have given us the parable of the persistent widow. And you have promised that even if the judge, a wicked judge of the earth would give justice to a persistent widow, how much more will the Father give justice to the saints who cry out to him day and night? And so, Lord, we ask that you would do justice, that you would do justly on behalf of your church. We entrust our brothers and sisters to you. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your grace. We pray for, God, we pray for this this moment to end. 
Lord, you are the judge of the earth and you will do what is right. And then we pray with all the saints across time, come, Lord Jesus, come. Set right every injustice, break every chain, bow the heart of every leader. We long to hear the cry that Jesus Christ is Lord, rise up from around the world by the nations that have been brought in subjection to your loving rule. And remind us, Lord, as we go from here, remind us to pray for our brothers and sisters as though we were there with them. We pray all of this in your name, God. Amen. Amen.